License to Ill, which is the first rap album to go number one on the charts. It sold four times platinum, and it went 10 times platinum by 2015. Uh, white people. Welcome to the Echospire Song Destruct podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements, and we evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is money versus fight for your right to party. The theme is hacking hip-hop. So what we're going to do during this episode is I'm going to take you on a history lesson, taking us all the way back to classical music and monk chants from hundreds of years ago, and show you how that evolved into hip-hop today, which is the most popular music in terms of albums or singles or dollars generated. Hip-hop is the king of music now. So I'm also going to take us on into a deeper dive analysis of Motown and as well as the Beastie Boys career. And I'm going to define the common elements used in hip hop. When I started this project, I thought I really don't have a framework. So I developed one, did some research and found out, hey, this is definable. So we'll go over all of that. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hello, hello. I'll preface this all with, I'm not a big rap fan or a hip hop fan, but I do know probably more about the genre than most people who do enjoy hip hop or rap. Just from a technical background, I understand the elements being used. Even before I did this research, my research just came up with a proper nomenclature so that I could talk about it intelligently. But I do remember Ryan back in the day, in the early 90s, listening to some rap. Well, back in the early 90s, most of it was for me at the time, just being able to buy that uh, parental advisory sticker. It was almost like buying cigarettes under age or drugs. Um, so I remember a couple really dirty, filthy albums that I liked. Black Sheep. I don't know if you know Black Sheep. No, but Two Live Crew was my introduction to the filthiness of rap. Yeah, it's similar. But obviously the pinnacle was probably The Chronic. Yeah, that album's going to come up. I'm going to quantify where that actually shows up in history. It, it was one of the best-selling albums in rap history. First one I'm going to do is I'm going to get these songs out of the way in the next 10 or 15 minutes. There's not too much to parse through in terms of the complexities here. Let's talk about Money First. Now, it was by Barrett Strong, a singer. Had it written for him by Barry Gordy and Janie Bradford. This song came out in 1959. The Beatles covered it in 1963, pretty famously, on the album with the Beatles. This song did not chart. This was in the early days of Barry Gordy's career, so... Uh, this song did not receive a lot of airplay up front. However, as of right now, it's probably one of the more famous songs ever written. It is considered an R&B early classic. During the production, Holland of the famous Holland Dozier Holland songwriting team who had become part of Motown. Holland was around already in 1959. Uh, they had just built Hitsville, USA, the studio in 1959. Barely gotten some microphones in there when this song was recorded. And Holland was on the tambourine. Gordy was on the piano. And they hauled two white kids off of the street just walking by to play guitar and bass. So when you listen to the record, it might sound almost like a garage band sound, like a demo. And that's really what it was. It was completely improvised. They, they did have the, the basic workings of the song. The, the best things in life are free. You can give them to the birds and bees. That's really the entire song. And what's funny to me about it is that Barry Gordy was not a big fan of the blues. He loved jazz. He thought blues was boring and was redundant and not sophisticated music. <laughs> He's right. He is right. Having said that, this is his big first hit. Not that it sold any, but it did get him on the map. And this song is entirely a 12-bar blues. It's a dirty, grungy mood. You got to give him credit for that. If you listen to any song before, I can't find a single one that had the grunge sound. Yeah. I originally had thought the Kinks invented it in 1964. You really got me. That's got distorted guitar on it. Now, this is before the age of distortion pedals and pre-built effects. So if you wanted distortion, 
the story I know about the Kinks is that when they went to try to distort the guitar, they had to basically wreck the amp so that it came out distorted. You know, if you wanted echo, you couldn't just put on an echo filter or an echo effect. You had to actually put a speaker into a large room and then record it on the other side of the room to get the echo effect. So it does warrant a sticker for Barry Gordy that I believe he invented this kind of grungy arrangement because I can't find it anywhere pre this song. Lyrically, it's profiting on the concept of irony. So the song is kind of a, a novelty, kind of a funny song that he's saying, look, you can keep your love. I need money. But it's not money to go out and spend on a bunch of cars and advice. It's money to pay the bills. The lyrics are, the best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Your love is such a thrill, but your love won't pay my bills. I want money. That's what I want. Money don't get everything it's true. What it don't get, I can't use. I want money. A little bit of a riff here. I will say, just to quickly plant the seed, that hip-hop eventually comes out of this song. Because what is hip-hop if it's not a glorification of vice? In fact, I would go as far as to say 100% of every hip-hop song ever written has some allusion to glorifying vice. I would have said it was the first clever lyric if That'll Be The Day by Buddy Holly on our last episode hadn't come out. That'll Be The Day That I Die is actually a pretty clever lyric. But this is one of the more outrageous clever lyrics in all of Rockdom up until this point. Throw some shade on it and say that the outro is lazy. It's not particularly well thought through. The song was improvised, so can't fault it too much. If I were to give a songwriting lesson that you can take away from this, and I think I've mentioned in a past episode, irony is like the easiest way to improvise. Just either provide synonyms and antonyms or the exact opposite thought of what was coming next. And again, money triumphs on that because... The best things in life are free, but you can keep them. I want money, right? Right. He's triumphing on this irony concept. Uh, The chords here are very simple. It's just your one, four, five pattern, E-A-B. I will say that the riff, that's very novel. It's kind of this bossa nova style. It's a guitar riff. There are no guitar riffs in music up until this point. One that came closest was La Bamba. That's the closest thing you get, but nothing like this. To me, almost sounds like a Led Zeppelin guitar riff. It's a very simply constructed song, a couple of verses, kind of an instrumental, then another verse, then it goes to its outro. The songwriting lesson here is simplicity works. You know, Keep it simple. You can have a song that spans 70 years of popularity. Now, there's exclusions to that rule, such as Bohemian Rhapsody, but it's barely managed, even as a work of art, barely managed to stay relevant because no one puts on the seven-minute epic song anymore. People like very immediate music. I will say that hip-hop music is very immediate, just like early 50s music. It's something I would call meme music. So we're all familiar with memes these days, which are basically pop culture references and picture formats that people share online tend to be very topical. They tend to be very disposable. You know, they come and go. No one like is using a meme from last year unless you're attempting to be, uh, you know, ironic in some way. They're rarely substantial. They're kind of like snack food, not complex, very high on sampling. I mean, how many times have you seen a meme? 40 different variations of one different picture. And that's kind of how meme culture works. That's how rap culture works too. Everyone uses the same samples. To take it back to uh, money, simplicity works. People like familiar. They also like novelty. So if you can find a way to combine very familiar stuff with something new, you might have a hit on your hands. They're not doing anything particularly clever with the notes they're singing. However, he is singing uh, the four over the root notes. I always find that kind of interesting. It, it's almost as interesting as a ninth. And I might do a whole episode on singing fourths and ninths because they're just rare. You see three, five, you see root, you see six and sevenths all the time, but four and nine are hard to use. So we might do an episode there later. Let's talk about the arrangement of the song. Again, the intro is an iconic piano being dubbed by the bass. When they get into the verse, they cut it all out. The best things in life are free. And they just do the downbeat. Going back to our time episode last week, Hacking Time, they kind of take out the backbeat during that first four bars, and then they bring the backbeat in that kind of gives it a double time feel for the next 
eight bars. I want money. It's a verse refrain, so there's no verse chorus going on here. I think he also invents the call response. And certainly call response has been around since the 1800s when you had people singing gospel music. So call response is common. But the first time I saw it in rock music, I think, is with this. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. Which Beatles made a brand and Beach Boys made a brand. The tambourine really stood out. and I, I usually don't notice tambourine. Yeah, it's just dirty. I mean, the whole song has this dirty feel. Plus, no one had really heard distorted music. So you could go to some early blues guitarists in the early 50s, which I'll cover in my history. But still, they were playing dirty, but the, the dirty effect isn't really there. So by layering the dirty tambourine, layering the dirty bass, the dirty guitar, the dirty piano, the dirty lyrics for the time it was probably kind of risque. They came up with this dirty, grungy garage band sound. But I won't make him the father of garage band music because Buddy Holly was a little bit more uh, in the pocket. Let's talk about Beastie Boys for a second. Kick it! Kick it! The whole song is that riff. (laughs) So the writers are Adam Yatch. That's how you say his name. MCA is his handle. Tom Cushman was his friend. So it was not the Beastie Boys who actually wrote it. It was uh, MCA and his friend. This is the song that launched their career. Was it produced by um, Mr. Producer himself? Uh, Rick Rubin. It's a really good interview with him. Uh, Tim Ferriss podcast, real long. I think they did it in a sauna. It was weird, but uh, it was good. And uh, I thought he would be sort of responsible for that guitar riff or at least putting them in a sort of rock mentality. You know, rather than just straight up hip hop. Let me go ahead and do the history and it'll help shed light on it before I talk about the song. So the Beastie Boys are Mike D, Ad Rock, and MCA. They formed in 1978 as a punk band at the height of the punk movement. So you had Ramones and you had the Sex Pistols coming up and hey, Beastie Boys were there too, but they were a punk band at that time. They did not have their final lineup until 1981. Keep in mind what happened between 1978 and 1981, Grandmaster Flash. Plus punk kind of died out. Yeah, punk died out, plus rap came up. Beastie Boys are from Brooklyn, so a breeding ground for just anti-authoritanism. And ultimately, rap and punk kind of share very much that ethos. In 1983, they began to experiment with rap before Rick Rubin's influence. But they did meet Rick Rubin that year and Russell Simmons, who were basically college dorm mates. And Russell Simmons went on to have a big career in hip-hop as well as Rick Rubin. And apparently between some of their connections, and again, they're in New York, so New York is full of connections. They did get to go on tour with Madonna in 1985. This is before they're really anywhere near fame, but they they are seen as being capable. So they get on tour with Madonna in 1985, which at that time, Madonna was a pretty big act, but they do not actually make it big until they release License to Ill, which is the first rap album to go number one on the charts, it sold four times platinum, and it went 10 times platinum by 2015. Uh, white people. <laughs> Appropriation of black music. Well, you know what? We're going to go through the history, and we're going to find out that if it's black music, it, then it's white music, too. Everything goes back to Europe, and out of Europe came monk chants, string instruments, and brass instruments, classical music, which influenced jazz. Some people would give jazz over to being some kind of a ethnic music but it was really half and half i don't just mean the influence i i actually mean like just the the people that buy it you know oh yeah 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 it's the same reason that eminem's probably the i would imagine the biggest selling he um, is he is the best selling rapper of all time which we'll cover as well yeah run dmc the year prior 1986 managed to uh because they sampled walk this way white people music aerosmith they did manage to have a 3x platinum album but it did not go number one. Beastie Boys were the first to go number one. But Run DMC was a big act, but just one year ahead of them. So we'll get back into the history of rap, hip hop, music, and everything in just a minute. Let me go ahead and cover the Beastie Boys Fight for Your Right to Party. The song goes to number seven. It helped to launch Def Jam, which was Rick Rubin's label. Def Jam went on to become one of the most famous labels, having Jay-Z, Kanye, Rihanna, DMX, Run DMC, uh, Nas, or Nas, however you say it. Uh, They were all on that label. It's the most successful rap label of all time. Even though Run DMC was a bit crossover, 
Beastie Boys made rap completely crossover. They finished the journey. And also because of their consistent output, again, Run DMC didn't really have a, a, a long career, but because of Beastie Boys' career, which kind of spanned all the way into the 2010s, they were a Beatles of rap, if you will, as I uh, hinted at the last episode, not only because of their longevity and consistency, but also because of the experimentation that they did. And they did help to evolve rap into a hip hop genre, which again, I'll go into some of the defining elements there, but they were experimental. It was intelligent. A lot of things I do not necessarily assign to rap and hip hop music. I will tend to say that it is the furthest thing from intelligent. Not to say it doesn't have intelligent moments and intelligent lyrics, but as a genre of music, it's not attempting to be experimental. It kind of reuses the same beats over and over and over. But Beastie Boys did actively go through the process of introducing tons of samples and very obscure samples as well as introducing jazz and very eclectic music taste into their art, which I will call it. It is art, despite the fact that it falls under rap and hip hop genre, which I would not call a complex art. It's a very simple art. So the Beastie Boys, they have seven albums that went platinum. That's very consistent, although Eminem does beat them in terms of how many total albums sold. I don't think anyone's been as consistent as the Beastie Boys staying on top. They also invented a lot of different music video innovations. Fight for Your Right to Party is seen as one of the most iconic videos ever on MTV. So what you want, Sabotage, Intergalactic was iconic. Not just winning the awards, but kind of trendsetters. The Beastie Boys had that going for them, very much like the Beatles were trendsetters. I can't think of anyone whose footsteps you would say that they were following in because everybody else, even if you're talking Dr. Dre or Tupac or Biggie at this time, the Beastie Boys were on their own planet doing their own thing and were not really participating in the East Coast, West Coast gang war that was going on during the 90s rap scene. All right, moving on to architecture for this song. So like most great songs that leave a long lasting impression, they are designed from beginning to end. And this one opens with kick it. Even before you get to the kick it, you had this long, drawn-out, decadent power chord. So these are elements that I find kind of fascinating because as a writer, I'm always trying to get into the headspace of a great artist, a great selling artist. And I think, what must have been going through their head? And I think people don't tend to give enough credit to these geniuses on one level or another in so much as how much thought that they give to kind of polishing these records. That's not to say it's not just a quick impulse and somebody says, let's throw on a big heavy power chord before we kick in the heavy drums and kind of give it this heavy metal slash rap feel. I don't think that that much forethought goes into it, but even if it's just an impulse, they got great instincts to be able to put that in there and plan their songs out accordingly. Having been a writer, I know that that stuff doesn't necessarily come second nature. And yet it feels like it comes second nature to every single Beastie Boys song. Everything is just always very light and clever. A lot of their songs to me sound the same. I don't know. It seems like a simpler type of rap. Yeah. So obviously rap has evolved into more complicated schemes and rhyme schemes and uh, patterns and rhythms. I don't even know how they memorize their own lyrics. Mm -hmm. It's a talent. It boggles my mind that you wouldn't just get lost in a verse. I mean, let alone memorizing 30 songs. You think about rock acts from the, the 1960s and 70s. They have to have their lyrics on a on a teleprompter. And it's like, haven't you memorized it? It's only, it's only like five lines. The audience knows your lyrics better than you do. <laughs> Michael Stipe is famous for, I think, having a of course. music stand of lyrics. Well, that's just him trying to be an intellectual. He's got to have a yeah. Stand. He kind of he looks profes- he looks professorial up there. When you're not dealing with melody, melody sort of in, um, infuses the lyric into the melody and into your brain, so you can almost sing without thinking about it. If it's a simple song, right. um, just- well, let me get back to fight for your right to partay. So lyrically, they kind of made some uh, clever choices here, which is to revert to being very juvenile. Now, again, this might be second nature to them, but this song is very juvenile, overtly talking about school, mom, classes, homework, teacher, preaches, jerk, pop, smoking, hypocrite, smokes two packs a day, drag, porno mag, cut the hair, jealous, beastie boys. Oh, yeah. Let me talk about that, Beastie Boys. So such a calling card for them. 
that when they get to that mom is just jealous, it's the beastie boys. The fact that they hand off those three syllables to accentuate the fact that they are always trading the mic during their performance, that is super clever, total yeah. calling card, because they announce themselves to the world going, this is our thing. This is our brand. Right. I'm a sucker for design. Pearl Jam, I thought, very cleverly designed how they came out onto the, the stage with Alive. They could have released lots of songs. I mean, every song on that album was good. But they, they went with Alive. They wanted to design it in a certain way, and they came out with a live video of the song Alive. And that's because they wanted to be taken seriously as an actual performance, not just a, a band who could make records in a studio. Was even flow live as well, or was it? Just no, they, it wasn't. So the only actual video they ever made with like a story and actors or whatever, probably ever, was Jeremy. People that they respected kind of pushed back on them because of the video. They said the video made me not like the song, and then of course they had the pushback from people saying you're trying to encourage uh, teen violence by showing this stuff because we hadn't had Columbine yet. So you very well could make the case that a video like Jeremy did bring about Columbine three, four years later, but. Whatever. Shrug. Cause and effect. It's impossible <laughs> to measure. Pearl Jam, when they recorded their album, they did not like how Alive sounded. So they chose to use an earlier demo version on the studio produced album. Again, just like with Money, uh, Barrett Strong, they used this demo dirty version and it just worked and they knew it worked and they went with it and they released it. They knew that the version of Alive that they had captured in a previous lower budgeted demo session was the one. So when in doubt, kind of songwriter tip or production tip, really, never be afraid to go backwards. You don't have to just keep layering. You too, on the song one we talked about, famously went backwards. They had kind of built up all these different layers. The producer came in and said, guys, you got to strip this thing down to its assets and we got to rebuild this thing because it's not working. Another lesson to draw here is that Sugar Ray, if anybody remembers Sugar Ray from like the mid 90s and onward. <laughs> they have one good song. Yeah. I just want to fly. I wake up, wake up, wake up, no. wake up, wake up, That was their first song. I, I always felt like the only one that I've ever gotten stuck in my head was the Every Morning song. Well, they actually had yeah. probably four good songs, honestly, but still they traded on the Beastie Boys because they were that kind of heavy metal switched over to hip hop. So they were the second coming of Beastie Boys. And it's also just party music. Just like I, I'll take it back to the meme culture. Rap music is party music. Yes, there there are a few songs that try to get down. And, you know, I think Ice Cube, was it Ice Cube who did Friday? Today was a good day. Whatever that song was. Yeah, it was It was called Today's a Good Day, I think. You rarely find songs in rap that are attempting to break a mold. I mean, they're trying to be the same thing over and over. Party music, basically. The chords of Beastie Boys, Fight for Your Right to Party, A, C, D. That's the riff. Root, flat, third, and then a four. A, C, D. And then the chorus is just a D to an A, basically five, two. Towards the end of the song, when they're going, party, when they're holding that note, it's a dissonant note that they're holding over the chords, A, C, D, party, they're hitting these notes as they're going through that chord structure. They're hitting a major seventh, a flat sixth, and a flat fifth, which is a diminished. Those are three very hard notes to hit. And if you listen to it, it sounds very dissonant, but it works. And I'm proud that they did have enough music compositional complexity to know that lingering on that suspended note. You're proud of them? That, I'm that... proud of them, man. Okay, <laughs> I'm good. proud of them. Give MCA a little pat on That's the back. That's right. Well, you get to a certain age. I'm 39, approaching 40 rapidly. Whoa. As are you. Too much reveal. TMI. You get to a certain age where you begin to look back on these things. And yeah, they were ahead of my time at the time I was seven when this was on the radio but now i look at it and i go well there were a couple of 20 year old snot-nosed kids man good on them <laughs> they pulled their act together and made this cool rocking song that has lasted 40 years at this point yeah that's just the way i look at life now is uh the beatles were were children they were they were little kids making music and uh awesome that they were able to do that at such a young age most people don't accomplish in their 60s what the beatles were able to accomplish in their 20s right so it goes beyond music this is a sense of accomplishment and uh you know discovery the 1500s had the explorers you know the the great navigators and we in our era have had the great explorers of music 
and kind of these more metaphysical elements that are hard to categorize, but you have to deconstruct if you really want to fully appreciate them, which is the reason for this podcast. Moving on to production choices by the Beastie Boys in uh, Fight for Your Right to Party. They used distorted guitar. They used a lot of punk sensibilities. The music video particularly is like very punk rockish. The instrumentation, they used a lot of palm muting, which was the heavy metal influence. Engineering choices, they used a lot of ride cymbals, which was very characteristic of the period. Rock music used a lot of ride cymbal, that high tenny sound. Effect choices they made was... Uh, trading the mic back and forth, which I think was popular at the time amongst a lot of early rap groups. But again, the Beastie Boys were able to popularize it by actually writing a song that people wanted to listen to. And then people became very familiar with the mic trade-off mechanism. It's got an anthemic chorus. You know, people can scream and shout that from their dormitories as well as from the inner city streets. It's kind of universal. Fight for your right to party. Of course, NWA would be coming out, I think, the next year with, you know, Fight the Power kind of stuff. Was it NWA? No, Fight the Power is uh, Public Enemy. Yeah, Public Enemy. So there you go. And I don't even know much, but... It's from uh, Do, Do the Right Thing, which great movie. Uh, it's Yeah, I've been meaning to rewatch it. By the way, um, now you've revealed your age and the your, big reveal, by the your way. fatherly instincts. Do you find yourself listening to a song like, you've got to fight for your right to party and go, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't be smoking. <laughs> You should get to class on time and don't talk back to your mom or whatever. Let me be honest and say, yeah, it kind of grates (laughs) on my ears a little bit. I did immediately see the irony in the lyrics. And when I looked up the background of the song, the Beastie Boys very much were of the mind that this was a farce song. It wasn't their philosophy of, of life. It was, you know, just making fun of party songs hmm. despite the fact that they were ruffians at the time and after they got famous with this song and they went on tour and they were they were seen everywhere getting into fights and starting riots at their concerts so it's not to say they were very mature uh, they did see themselves as more mature than this song and they thought that this song was just a lark still most people took it sincerely and said yeah fight for your right to party one big lesson uh that i take away from the production choices here are that the drums on this song are particularly sophomoric. You talk about the tambourine being kind of dirty and you know just not in time. Well, the drums on this song sound like somebody just learned drums a week ago. If you listen to it, it's, it's very clumsy and just very monkey sounding. But guess what? It, it, it works for the song because the song is meant to sound a bit immature and a bit garage bandish, so it wouldn't sound the right sound if everybody was playing at uh you know classically trained levels of expertise so bottom line sometimes if you suck at guitar just make it work for you if you suck at singing make it work for you Mm, that never worked for me (laughs) you didn't make it work for you Ah. so they do have a pretty clever solo as well i'm just going to give a quick shout out to whoever played it i didn't want to do the research to figure it out the solo is got some cool blues tones some disparate notes some heavy metal influence you go back and listen to it you'll agree it's it's pretty novel even for the day when you had steve Vai and various you know shredders out there you didn't see stuff necessarily as inventive as this cheap little throwaway party song from a crossover rap group so the beastie boys did have some pretty nice sensibilities when it came to sophistication real quick though what do you think about riffs that simple it's quite clearly a catchy riff i think from the perspective of songwriters though i hear riffs like that and simple like that all the time and i go that's not good (sighs) i think the difference between like a a good songwriter and a bad is to understand the difference and Mm -hmm. um I don't know if it's anything other than intuition when you're dealing with a three or four note riff and why one is good and one's one is, yeah. you know, boring. I think it's intuition. It can't be taught. Yeah. The kinks kind of invented that riffing. You think of, uh, you really got me. Da, 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 right. da, 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 thing. And the who traded on the back of the kinks. Bottom line is if it sounds good, it's good, but you got to have intuition. You got to have the right sensibilities. A lot of stuff I think sounds good stuff from Radiohead. I think it sounds good, but it's never going to cross over to mass appeal like fight for your right to party does. It's not to say one's better than the other. It's just one is mass appeal and usually mass appeal equals simple. And the more sophisticated it is, the less it's going to appeal. There's somewhere in the middle too. There's that paranoid Android zone 
where it's a complicated song. That's them going off the deep end creep. That's them bringing sophistication to a simple level. I just don't know if I consider creep necessarily complex. And the, even the riff uh, in the middle of Paranoid Android. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think that's I think that's right in the middle. It's complex in a little bit. It goes out of the key. Who was it? The White Stripes, that song that's played in every stadium now. Seven Nation Army. Yeah, yeah. that's basically a ripoff of that riff you were just talking about from Radiohead. Dun, 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 dun. So they simplified. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it, it has a similar uh, rise and fall yep. and, and, and rhythm, rhythm to it. So let me go to the Beastie Boys real quick and just complete their history. So again, they make it famous off of License to Ill, four times platinum. They're rich. Rick Rubin's rich. And they basically break ties with Rick Rubin immediately afterward. Not sure why. I didn't want to do the research into it, but I've heard from other stories that Rick Rubin was a bit difficult to work with. But I also think Beastie Boys exhibited a very common trait that is popular in any urban music going back to Motown, which was they were entrepreneurial, not just artists, but they were first and foremost entrepreneurial. And they had an idea of what they wanted from the business point of view of this venture of going into business as rappers. So the very first thing they did was they went out and negotiated a sub-label with Capital. Their next album, Paul's Boutique, they only sold 2 million, which was seen as a failure because the other one had sold 4 million copies. So this was kind of a failure. Still, they were doing okay. Check Your Head came out in 1992. That also went two times platinum. That was far more experimental, though. If you want any album to listen to in the Beastie Boys re- repertoire that sounds like Sgt. Pepper, it's Check Your Head. So they went very experimental, tons of samples, cool samples from movies, music. They blended all kinds of art and culture and history. Uh, That's also the one that had So What You Want, which only went to number 93. Again, it went number seven with Fight for Your Right to Party, and they would never climb the charts that high ever again. So Check Your Head was released on Grand Royal, their own label. And 1994, Ill Communication came out. It debuted at number one. Uh, It had Sabotage on it. Sabotage didn't actually chart, but it was still a popular song and a popular music video. In fact, Sabotage is ranked as the 480th greatest song ever. And Ill Communication sold 3 million copies. By 1998, they still sold 3 million copies with Hello Nasty, and it debuted at number one. And 2004, to the Five Bureaus, that album, their last big album, also debuted at number one, and it went platinum. So that's a quick overview of the Beastie Boys. Now, I just want to quickly take us back, way back to the 1500s. So you had Monk Chants coming out at this time. Before then, music was around. People knew how to hum. There had been precursors to string instruments, but nothing had really ever collected. But by the 1500s, Monk Chants were being written down in some kind of musical notation to where they could recite them and they could record them in, in terms of music notes. They were developing a system to record music. So that's the 1500s. By the time you get to the late 1600s and say the 1700s, you have the piano emerging, the harp emerging, some other stringed instruments that don't even exist anymore. By the 1800s, you got brass instruments, percussion, big symphonies, all those types of things emerging. You also, in the late 1800s, start to get kind of the gospel, the country music, Appalachian type music, Irish Root music is sort of what it all falls, falls under the banner of. So root music gives way to jazz. And jazz is kind of like the garage band music of classical. They took all the same stuff that you would find in a classical orchestra, but they pared it down to you know three, four, maybe 10, 20 people at tops. And this came out of New York City where you could have a club and it was much easier and much uh, cheaper to hire a jazz band than, a, than an orchestra. So jazz music to me isn't a race music, as some people would suggest it is. Jazz music was more just paring down and making more affordable classical music for the masses and making it more interesting and more upbeat and more up-tempo and having you know jazz drumming and all that kind of stuff. I never even knew that jazz music was considered race music until I did some of the research for this. I'll tell my listeners right now, jazz music is not race music. It's neither white, it's neither black. 
by the 30s, 1930s, you get blues music coming out. That is race music, as well as gospel music. No one else was playing blues music for 20, 30 years until it started to cross over. But in the 1930s, you also get the crooner, the big band era. You know, Frank Sinatra comes out and all these others. And this is kind of the precursor to rock and roll. Blues is not the precursor. If anything, it's country music, and it's maybe country music and crooner-style music fusing together. And of course, blues did also get fused into rock and roll. But primarily, I would say it's two parts country, one part crooner, and one part blues. So 50% of it's coming out of country, mostly because of the lyrical inspiration that country had. Blues was not known for its lyrics. Crooner music sometimes had clever lyrics, but country always had clever lyrics lyrics. And country was always politically infused. They talked about topical issues. That started to influence crooner music and by the 50s, like think of songs like Love and Marriage, Love and Marriage. It's an institute you can't disparage. Stuff like that was influenced by country. By 1954, Elvis, by 1956, Little Richard, he solidifies rhythm and blues. And by 1968, you get heavy metal and you get funk, which are both fusions of music that came before. And by 1979, you get Grandmaster Flash, rap. And by 1994, you get hip hop, which is basically a fusion of rap and R&B. Real quick, let me do a rap history. So in 1937, there's a song called Doing the Jive by Glenn Miller, and it's considered to be the first spoken word rhyming. But if you listen to it, it pretty much sounds like rap music. And it's just spoken word rhyming. By World War One, World War Two as well, you, you begin to have chants and military cheerleading. I don't know what I've been told. Do, 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 these kinds of things. You start to get people experimenting with rhyming and spoken word chants. By 1950, you get Joe Hill Lewis with the song Gotta Let You Go. It was recorded with Sam Phillips of Sun Records. If you go back and listen to that, that's some pretty dirty blues, almost hip hop sounding. It, I mean, we're talking real early precursor, but if you listen to it, 1950, Joe Hill, Lewis, Gotta Let You Go. I can hear precursors to hip hop music in there. Little Richard again, 1955, 1956. He's got Tutti Frutti on Rudy, Tutti Frutti on Rudy. Little Richard brought attitude. That type of attitude that Paul McCartney borrowed and everyone else in the 60s borrowed from. Little Richard invented. I can't find anyone pre-Little Richard who had that sense of excitement. I mean, Little Richard's before uh, James Brown. It's like a uh, finger a finger wagon attitude. Yeah, personified in a voice. 1957, Music Man. Also 1957, you get West Side Story. So these Broadway plays, Music Man and West Side Story, both have a songs in them that kind of feature rapping. Uh, West Side Story's famously kind of glorifies gang violence, which again is in rap's history because by the time you get to the 90s, the whole gang warfare thing with the East Coast, West Coast thing, it all borrows from West Side Story. You had all these different ethnicities forming gangs and all you know going after each other. When you think of Michael Jackson, uh, Beat It, he actually imitates a scene from West Side Story of all the guys in the uh, parking garage. By 1957 as well, you're having radio DJs rapping over beats. You know, No one considers it to be rapping. In fact, they consider it to be discoing or DJing where, you know, someone will, we have a song coming up and we're going to be talking to you like this. And, you know, just, it was seen as a DJing thing, like an actual radio DJ. And before the lyrics came in, the DJ would tell you something over that instrumental part and they would kind of have to jive it to the, the rhythm of the record. It's a whole art form. Uh, Howard Stern talks about it, like trying to get what you need to say in, in the time allotted. By 1958, there's a record by George Russell, uh, called New York, New York. It's a jazz record, but he hired a guy named John Hendricks to narrate over some of the jazz music, and it just sounds like rapping. That funky jazz stuff, like, kind of like the, the, the DJ stuff, but it, it's on a record, 1958. By 1960s, you get Muhammad Ali, famous for doing a lot of jive talking. Uh, as a boxer, he would kind of get out in front of the cameras and do a lot of uh, colorful collo colloquialisms, beat poetry, if you will, and so, again, this was a precursor. By 1965, you get James Brown releasing a song like Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and I Feel Good. All that attitude. I mean, this is just one more layer of abstraction, if you will, from the 1955 when Tutti Frutti came out. 
It took 10 years to build it up to James Brown. And also in 1965, you get the Watt riots, you got the rise of Malcolm X and kind of that black power, violent movement. You start to see the beginnings of black exploitation films coming out, which are just, you know, films that try to be particularly geared towards over the top glorification of certain issues that blacks would face, such as inner city turmoil. So all that's starting in 1965. By 1971, Gil Scott Heron released what's considered to be this first spoken word rap over funk album. It was considered protest music. By 1973, you get Lightning Rod, Hustler Convention. So Lightning Rod was the band. Hustler Convention was the name of the album. It's as dirty as anything that's come out today, trying to be explicit exploitative, more misogynistic, more violent. Listen to like five, 10 minutes of it. You'll be like, wow, this sounds like it came out in 1991, but it's 1973. 1975, you get DJ Hollywood, who is supposed to be the, the guy who invented flow. So let me talk about that for a second. The ability to rap comes down to delivery. Delivery has a few different components. This is the framework. You have to rhyme or not rhyme. You have to use a pattern. You have to use a rhythm in your delivery, and you have to use a flow. Now, flow is considered to be a pitch and intensity and a volume. It's kind of the attitude, if, if you will, of rapping. And the guy who was supposedly first invented flow and the ability to modulate in intensity and pitch and everything was DJ Hollywood, 1975. And by 1979, you had hip hop, the hip, the hip hop, you don't stop, whatever it is. You know why that hip hop became called hip hop? Because of that song? Right. But I mean, more more specifically, they nobody knew the name of the song because it was uh, oh, funny. What is it, a rapper's delight. Or yeah, something. yeah, that's right. So, some, so they would just go into the store and be like, you have that hip hop song. And then that's just how it started. 1982, Grandmaster Flash. And I like this song. It's called The Message. He released, it's like a jungle out here. Sometimes I wonder how I keep from going under. Kind of a cool song. This is where the Beastie Boys start to evolve it into hip hop. Now, what's the difference between rap and hip hop? Ultimately, rap, I think, tends to be darker. Hip hop tends to be more infused with more R&B elements, tends to be more musical, tends to be softer, if you will. Rap is considered to be almost just a speech, prose, poetry type of delivery with rhyming schemes and spoken words. Is rap really a genre anymore? Not anymore, but it was in the 80s. And in the 90s, there were two different genres. There was there was rap, which would have been something like Vanilla Ice or MC Hammer. <laughs> no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you think MC Hammer would have been hip-hop and um, no. rap would have been like Snoop Dogg? All those were rap. Hip-hop would have been like Salt and Peppa, which had more music and more R&B inspirations. You down with OPP? That's still rap. Michael Jackson would have been more like hip-hop. Do you remember the time when we fell in love? R&B. Yeah, it's R&B, but it tends to have more rap into it, and that's why it becomes hip-hop. But again, now it's all the same stuff. So whether it's heavy on the rap or heavy on the R&B, it's all hip-hop. So this is the golden age of rap, 1985 to 1993, before it gives way to hip hop. 1986, Run DMC comes out with Raising Hell, sells 3 million copies on the back of their huge single, Walk This Way, which went number four. 1987, Beastie Boys, they sell 4 million copies. They go to number one with License to Ill. 1988, NWA, which famously had Ice Cube and Dr. Dre in it. Uh, they come out with Straight Outta Compton. It goes platinum at first, and it ends up going three times platinum by 2015. But still, it was a big record for its day at platinum. Public Enemy also came out, their second album, and it went platinum. This is all riding on the back of Beastie Boys at this point, because Beastie Boys made rap acceptable to all audiences, not just inner city, but suburban kids. And you know, me and you are listening to it. We're eight years old at this point. Well, whatever MTV would allow. That's Exactly. 1990, you get Vanilla Ice. He comes out with... With to the extreme. Oh, thank God. Yep. And guess what? It's one of the bigger <laughs> rap albums that's seven times platinum. That uh, makes perfect sense. And uh, then MC Hammer comes out the next year, 1991. He's the first to have a diamond status album. It goes 10 times platinum or 10 million copies sold in the first year. And that's the Please Don't Hurt Him Hammer album. Please Don't Hurt Him Hammer. He heard him all right. 10 times platinum. 1993. <laughs> Dr. Dre and the Chronic, three times platinum. 1994, Biggie Smalls. 
he invents the new kind of flow that's current to this day, kind of that sloppy, going sloppy on you. That's biggie for you. He comes out with Ready to Die. That goes two times platinum in 1994. Snoop Doggy Dog comes out with Doggy Style. That goes four times platinum in 1994. Salt and Peppa come out with Very Necessary. And that's a five times platinum. That had songs like Shoop on it. And that's why I credit them with inventing hip hop. One, they had a big success in terms of they went five times platinum. But two, Salt and Peppa made rap and hip hop and R&B kind of all blend together. I recall on the MTV music videos how their video would get far more rotation than, say, a a gangster type video because Salt and Peppa was not into gangsterism. It was party music. So it was more crossover. For a while, New York was really snobby. You know, they were like, we are, we invented hip hop. You can't do it in LA. Well, and that's the thing about urban or any kind of urban music. And I'd say that Motown started it, whether it's Motown or funk or rap or hip hop. They all came out of these major city centers like LA, New York, Detroit. Atlanta kind of played a second tier role, but all of these music genres came out of those cities. Whereas rock came out of different countries altogether. You had London, you had Liverpool, you had New York, you had Memphis, you had the LAs, but you also had a few other pretty big players like Chicago. So it was far more spread about, whereas rap or any kind of hip hop or funk or urban music came out of three cities, New York, LA, Detroit. Right. 1996, Tupac comes out with All Eyes on Me. That goes seven times platinum. 1997, it all ends with Notorious B.I.G. dying and his Life After Death album goes eight times platinum. Likewise, Tupac's Greatest Hits comes out in 1999, goes nine times platinum. Nine times. And by 2000, (laughs) you get the greatest rapper of all time, Eminem. He comes with faster, more complex flows, comes on the back of Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre kind of introduces him to the world. People think Nas is like the best rapper of all time. You can have your favorite, but I'm saying objectively the amount of records this guy has sold. Oh, okay. You're talking about sales. In terms of sales, he releases Marshall Mathers LP, his first album, and it goes eight times platinum. But again, Eminem is not just about one album. He has consistency. The Eminem show in 2002 goes eight times platinum as well. So the guy has staying power. Also in 2000, you get a third coming of Beastie Boys. So the second coming was Sugar Ray. The third coming is Linkin Park. They go eight times platinum with Hybrid Theory, which again is kind of this heavy metal rap crossover music. The last great album of rap's heyday or hip hop's heyday, because today everything is mostly singles. Albums don't tend to chart too much. Uh, the last great album to come out was 2003's Outcast, Speaker Box. It went 10 times platinum on the back of the song, Hey, yeah, hey, yeah. You're going to gloss over the 50 Cent era and the uh, Kanye era? They were sold. They probably sold in the millions. Well, here's what I have to say about that. All the rappers who have sold in the three to eight times platinum category, I gave you the highlights of like the, the best per year, but the guys who in the middle, kind of tier two who have sold anywhere from three to eight X platinum albums are Nelly 50 cent had one in 2003, Dr. Dre in 2001, Lauren Hill in 1998, the Fugees in 1996, Will Smith, Puff Daddy, Bone Thugs and Harmony, DMX, Wu-Tang, Nas, Master P, Lil Wayne, Ludacris, Jay-Z, Kanye West, Jennifer Lopez, and Beyonce. So that's all of tier two. Otherwise, tier one is MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. <laughs> <laughs> so here are some of the components of hip hop. Glorify money, bravado, good times, uncouth topics, violence, tends to be a little bit police hating, lots of profanity, gang, and thug life. Those are the elements. It does tend to be cynical music. It does tend to be dysfunctional, brash ugly and edgy on purpose, beatboxing, percussive vocal styles, subculture fashion sensibilities, sampling, party music, activism music. It tends to be politically infused. Not going to go into the Motown history. I'm going to say this for another episode since we're running a little long here. Let's talk about the greatest selling rap singles of all time. Wiz Khalifa 
in 2015 released See You Again. This has sold 11 million records. It was on the soundtrack of Furious 7, which helped to sell it because the main actor in that movie died. And See You Again kind of was a bit of a um, tribute tribute song. So it did sell quite well at 11 million. Drake has uh, sold 11 million of God's Plan. That came out in 2018. And Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, they are third in line for the best-selling rap single of all time with Thrift Shop, which came out in 2013. Most albums sold by a rapper, Eminem, has 220 million albums sold worldwide. Drake has 150 million albums sold worldwide. Kanye has 135 million albums sold worldwide. Chris Brown has 140 million albums sold worldwide. Jay-Z, 125 million. Lil Wayne, 110 million. Those are the heavy hitters in terms of albums. Today, people mostly just release singles. No one buys the album. And the way that people listen to music and consume music, they're not buying at the store. They're listening to it through Spotify or some music sharing service. So people don't tend to listen to the whole album. They just listen to one single. So in the future, that's going to be the big key performance indicator, not albums. It'll just be who has the highest selling single. That's relatively a new development in the past five years, You know, when Spotify kind of became a common platform back up for just a minute and uh, come back to our two songs during this episode, which were Money and Fight for Your Right to Party. Money, upstream from it, was Buddy Holly with the garage band type of sound, but it also had a lot of B.B. King blues attitude uh, that was infused in there. And downstream, you had the Beatles and you had all of rap and hip-hop history emerging from Motown. The middle ground was funk. So went Motown, funk, rap. On the Beastie Boys side, influences were everything from the Kinks to the Ramones to Motown. I do think we've done it justice to cover all the elements, the history, how rap music, how hip-hop music, how it all evolved from the 1500s. That's pretty much every type of music that's ever been invented, and we just discussed them all. The ultimate upstream-downstream workflow of what influenced what. And with that, this podcast has covered all the bases. So moving forward, we're going to be covering songs that I find particularly clever. Instead of trying to jump in and out of different genres, I feel like we've covered them all except for country. So we'll come back to country. So for next week, we're going to jump kind of out of what we've been doing, which is kind of covering a lot of different frameworks for how music, how to basically conceptualize different genres of music. We're going to jump into the deep end of the pool with some of the best music ever written with Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen going against Guns N' Roses. Now I'm debating on which song to put up for Guns N' Roses. Civil War, Civil War perhaps. Paradise City, I don't perhaps. Know. We'll find out. I just I have to do some more thinking on this. But ultimately, Guns N' Roses and Queen, they're, to me, the center. Bohemian, okay, let me write this down. Well, how do you spell it? Not that familiar with it. Um, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody and, what'd you say, Paradise City? Well, thanks, everyone, for listening and leave us some comments. Uh, I think only one person has left us a comment, but we have five five-star reviews. That's kind of nice, but I would like to see some more reviews. What did the comments say? Uh, oh, there's only one comment from Peter Oh, okay. talking about how great we are. but. It's someone we know. I like to hear from a stranger out there. At this point, I don't think there's anywhere else in the world where you can get this kind of deconstruction analysis. So yep. if you want to see it continue, leave us a comment. All right. Signing off. So long.